For the rest of us, we're going to be picking up in 1 Peter 4, so you can go ahead and turn there. I know we're like jumping all around, but I'm studying in all sorts of different places for different age groups, so this is my like Sunday adult book that I'm studying through. So like 1 Peter 1, we covered like a year ago. You guys probably don't remember it, but that was more a salvation passage, talking about our living hope in Jesus. Um, then 1 Peter 2 was talking about how we're to grow in grace. 1 Peter 3, it also covered parenting, so these are like hard-hitting, hard-hitting uh, passages here. And then marriage God's way, so again, and now today, you guys buckle up, because he's, he's got some good stuff for us. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. You guys all there? 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Still hear a few pages turning. All right. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So this is God's command for us. He says, enough, enough worldliness, enough sin, enough fleshly folly, enough living like the Gentiles of Peter's day, which really sounds a lot like our world today, right? Peter's list sounds pretty familiar um, because these are the works of the flesh. They're not the works of the Spirit. Lewdness, lust, drunkenness, they're called out right there in, in your Bible, right there in the Word. Middle of verse 3, enough lewdness. It's pursuing licentiousness, it's sensuality, it's debauchery. It's like a, a reckless, anything-goes attitude about life. It says the wilder, the more excessive, the more perverse, the more extreme, the better. The idea here is lewdness is a, is a self-centered, short-sighted, life full of whatever sin seems best in the moment. It's embracing whatever seems pleasurable could be drugs, violence, fornication, even excessive food, how evil it is. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 puts it another way. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanliness with greediness. So enough lewdness. Middle of verse three, what's the next thing he calls out? Enough lust. The word here is epithemia, it's lust, it's sexual desire, craving, longing, appetite, and today we're all too familiar with it. It's seemingly everywhere around us, isn't it? Sex and skin and flesh on display on every channel, show, every website, so we have to be especially careful because lust is used as a tool to lure, to attract, to sell. And these days, the world's telling us it's just, it's a harmless look, with some even so-called progressives saying that pornography can help make a relationship healthier and more intimate. What does God say about that? Jesus directly tells us that lust is adultery in our hearts. He says it's straight-up destructive sin. So who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the world, or are you going to listen to our loving, living Lord? No responses. <laughs> Listen to the Lord, obviously, right? So lust starts with the second look. It's, it's, sometimes, you know, you can't help it. You're driving, you see a billboard. But if you look back at it, that's, that's when you're making the conscious decision. When you're salivating for more instead of turning away, looking, wanting, desiring, pursuing what we have absolutely no business browsing for. 
Another way of looking at it is that lust is like the shiny fishing lure. How many fishermen do we have? Yeah, so do lures work? They like attract the fish, they get them going. Right, so it's the, sh- it's the shiny fishing lure that we pursue, that we swallow whole, fully ignoring sin's brutal hooks until it's too late, when they're fully embedded in our throats, right? And then they pull, they tear. James 1.15. Then when desire, which happens to be the same word here, it's epithemia, so when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So enough lust. Middle of verse 3 again, enough drunkenness. So alcohol is permissible in moderation, but drunkenness does serious damage. And if you've been there, you know it's a slippery slope from just one to one too many. Think of drunkenness as staggering off a dangerous, unstable cliff. How close to the edge do you guys really want to get? That's the question for us. How many of you guys, how many are you going to drag down with you? Drunkenness is a horrible thing. It's far too often our sin blows up. It brings down those around us. We're not the only one that it hurts, right? Now look at the end of verse 3. Enough revelries and drinking parties too. This is when the like-minded mix to pursue all three of these together. Lewdness, lust, drunkenness all together. All tempting one another, all encouraging and egging one another on in sinful debauchery. Because there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to sin. The bar scene isn't new. Drinking games aren't new. Revelries and raves and clubbing aren't new. Even hookup parties, orgies aren't new. Neither is ungodly conduct at, at concerts or sporting events. So God warns us here, enough with the wild, with the reckless, with the raunchy. He says, enough. Again, end of verse 3. Look at it for yourself. It's right in the word. Enough abominable idolatries. All of these are idols when we say no to God to say yes to them. Right? When we say yes to lewdness, when we say yes to lust, when we say yes to, to drink and turn our backs on God, we're pursuing pleasures that are actually putrid poison. God doesn't pull any punches here through Peter, and I know this is really hard-hitting this morning, but this is the, this is the passage we're in. He, the, he says that living this way is abominable to God. It's disgusting, it's detestable to him when we choose these idols instead of choosing to live for him. Listen to Luke sixteen fifteen, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And that's exactly what we're doing when we continue to ignore his commands, when we say that he's our Lord, but we don't live like it. When we choose to, living, choose to live according to all the ways that the unbelieving choose to live for. Just because the unbelieving world says that something is good or right doesn't make it so. Instead, we should trust God. We should take his word for it because we know his love for us. We know his motivation. We know that his plans for us are for our good. So enough. Let's see through the lies of the unbelieving world and see sin for the abominable idol that it is. Enough sin, enough lewdness, enough lust, enough drunkenness, pleasures. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Either the worldly ways, living, lewdness, lust, lies, drunkenness, really aren't these false gods, these are idolatry, right? Or will you say with me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So enough. God gives us the command. Now, thank, I'm grateful to him. He gives us the reason. He doesn't just say stop. He tells us why we should stop. So verse 3, God declares enough with our worldly rebellious ways. 
And now look at his tender instruction. So this is going back to verses 1 and 2. So beginning of verse 1, in light of his suffering, enough. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Isn't that, that's the best reason. He's already paid all. He's suffered for us. Our sin hurts him. He, he laid down his life. He took the blows for us. He suffered in our place to free us from the bondage of the sin. He teared at his own flesh to remove sin's hooks from our tender throats. So why would we still go back and take the bait, bite the lure, and swallow it whole all over again? He suffered by shedding his blood to wash us clean of our stain of sin. Why would we go and wallow it again? He suffered the stripes and scourging to heal us of our inequity. Why would we subject him to that again? Will we really return to these putrid poisons and drink them back down again? That's foolishness. Jesus suffered death in our place to rescue us from the just consequence of our sin. He suffered so that we can be cleansed and clothed in his righteousness and made alive in the spirit. So why would we ever willingly walk right back into that trap again? 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. That's the reality of all that he suffered for our sake, to cleanse our sin. Shouldn't that be enough reason for us to stop? But that's not the only reason that he gives us. Middle of verse one. Arm yourself also with the same mind. All right, in light of like-mindedness enough, of being like-minded with God, of being like-minded with our creator. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Don't you wanna be like-minded with the one who laid down his life to save you? With the one who loves you? With the one who has a good plan for you? Why would we not be like-minded with the one who's demonstrated his love? Listen to how Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this one especially. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. Are we that short-sighted? Are we that blind that we would turn back to that which we know kills, to that which we know destroys? How can we call him Lord if we don't conform our will to his, to be like-minded with him? He gives us yet another reason. Look at the end of verse one. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the, sorry, the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. So notice here that the he is lowercase. This is not talking about Christ. He never sinned that he should need to cease. Peter is saying that we have suffered so far in our sin. Haven't you guys, when you sin, you suffer for it. There are consequences, right? Now, Jesus cleanses us eternally, but we still have to reap the consequence here on earth. Other people around us still need to reap the consequences. So Peter says, in light of our suffering so far, enough. Look to the, the previous context of 1 Peter 2, 21. He says, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And then in 1 Peter 3, 17, he says, for it's, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil, right? If you're gonna suffer, would you rather suffer because you've done bad or because you've done good? Good. All right, so if you, if you 
aimed to cease sinning at all, you know that it's, it's not an easy thing, right? You often have to suffer to some extent to stop sinning. If we've suffered for the sake of good and godliness rather than giving into sin, why would we give up now, right? When you've started something and it's costed you, like you've, you've put in all that blood, sweat, and tears, and then you just give up on it, throw it away, that's a waste, right? So that's another reason that he gives us. He says, don't stop now. He, how sad would it be to put in tons of work and then to give up and then have to start over from scratch? Can you guys imagine tearing down the house that you'd almost finished building? How about crashing the cherished car that you had just restored? Or how about entirely erasing the effort of a super long project or like your entire time at school, your career, just giving it up, trashing it? It doesn't make any sense, right? If we've aimed for sanctification, if, we, if we've aimed for godliness and we've suffered in that, why then just wipe it all out to go back to what we know kills? He gives us yet another reason. This is the end of verse 2 but for the will of God. So in light of God's will enough, right? We often wonder, what's God's will for me? He spells it out clearly in his word. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God. Any question there? This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Then we've got Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace will, may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? I don't know how God's word can make it any more clear. It's perfectly consistent. It's right there in his word, said over and over again in many different ways, all with the aim of getting through to us. His will's clear, but it's reason enough for us. Listen to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to also walk just as he walked. So this is not saying that we earn our way by keeping his commandments, but because he saved us, because we love him, then we aim to keep his commandments. So if we aim and we fall short, that's one thing. But if our aim is sin, we're turning our backs on him. So this brings us to one final reason. This is in verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So how much of our lives have we already wasted in sin? Why waste any more? That's what Peter's asking us. Days, months, years, decades. I bet there's not a single person here or anywhere who wouldn't take back something if they could, who wouldn't redeem that time. Now, even though God can and will redeem even our wasted walk for our good, haven't we also wasted enough time in wasteful living? Jesus taught the same truth in Luke 15 with the example of the prodigal son. He demanded his inheritance, then he took off. He left his family, all of his responsibilities, accountability, to go live a wasteful life, to go spend on his own foolish follies. Listen to Luke 15, starting with verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a fall country, 
sorry, a far country, and there wasted his possessions on prodigal living. Does that term sound familiar? He went off for a wasteful walk. He's a perfect example. The, the word is literally the same. It's asatos, literally wasteful living. He went for a reckless, wild, moral abandonment with undisciplined debauchery, and it's exactly what Peter's talking about here. And surprise, surprise, where did that lead him? Where did he end up? Yeah, he ended up wanting. Luke 15, 14 through 16, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him to the fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. When we pursue putrid, poisonous pleasures, they might taste good going down, but they're no good for us. They're not going to leave us satisfied. They're not going to make us any better. When he had had his fill of such a totally wasteful walk, he was left wanting. He was hungry. He was lonely. He was full of regret for his wasteful walk, and he reaped exactly what he sowed. But eventually, he came to his senses. He decided that he had had enough wasteful walking, and listen to Luke 15, 17 through 19. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The prodigal repented. He acknowledged his sin of the wasteful walk. He turned to his father. He came back humble, ragged, dirty, desperate, expecting nothing, deserving nothing. But his father received him how? Did he make him grovel? No, he was his beloved son. He ran to him. He arose, he ran to him, he kissed him, he hugged him. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe. This my son was dead and is alive again. He's lost and then he's found. The prodigal's father ran to him to receive him. He didn't hold it against him. He ran to him in love and mercy and grace. He restored him, he rejoiced. That's the way God is every time we turn back to him. Every time we say, no, I'm, I'm wasting my life. I want to live according to your will. That's what he offers us. First of all, salvation, forgiveness for our sin, the moment we turn, but also relief, redemption, grace, cleansing, restoration, Holy Spirit strengthening. And then he instructs and strengthens us to no longer live for a wasted worldly walk. Instead, he gives us the way to have true life in him, in progress, on earth, perfect, and then ultimately perfectly for all eternity. So that's reason enough to turn and repent, right? From death to life, from flesh to spirit. It ought to be reason enough. Galatians 5, 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. So enough for every reason. Will we be like-minded with God? Will we accept his grace and will for us as our Lord? And then will we look to Jesus' perfect example as love, his perfect loving sacrifice and example, aiming to walk worthy in him, to pursue godliness, to live in the spirit, not to give in um, to our old fleshly worldly ways, fully knowing that we've already wasted enough of our lives. And now we come to the pushback, right? Because our, is everybody going to be happy when you're aiming to live different, when you all of a sudden turn from your old worldly ways to live in the way that the word instructs? No. First Peter 4, um, verse 4. So the worldly are going to push back. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. 
So in verse 4, we read that the worldly are going to rip on you for not running with them. They're going to think that we're totally strange for not living in the same flood of dissipation, that we're not entirely living for earthly excess, for gain, for all that the unbelieving world say that we ought to live for. Is that any reason to conform to their ways? No. Is that any reason to run the old wretched rat race? No. So that doesn't mean that they're not going to try to pressure and convince, though. Here's, here's an example. All right, here, I've got a couple of them for you. So what do you mean you turn down the assignment? I need you on the road with me. I can't cover the whole region on my own. Besides, it's like a, an all-expense-paid break from your family. Free food, free drink, free hotel. And hey, what happens on the road stays on the road, right? So come on, I promise I'll make it worthwhile. Or what do you mean you can't sign off on this? Just fudge the numbers a little bit. No one cares. Everyone does it. Sign it, otherwise I'm going to get busted. You're going to hurt me if you don't agree to go in with my debauchery. Of course, they wouldn't say exactly like that. And if you don't, I'll make sure everyone knows that you're the one holding this up and messing up our bonus, right? The peer pressure. All right, we see the truth of the examples, but more importantly, we see the truth from the end of verse 4. The unbelieving aren't just going to silently think that, think that you're strange for living in a way contrary to the, world, the way the unbelieving world lives. They're going to try to pull you back in. And if sugar doesn't work, they're going to threaten, right? They're going to speak evil too. Isn't that what it says, speaking evil of you? Talk about you behind your back or even to your face. God gives us clear direction, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we already covered God's crystal clear will for us, right? Any questions on that? Should I go back? No? All right. So listen to the same truth. It's delivered in yet another way by Peter. This is back in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So look to Christ, be conformed to him, holy as he is holy, as we're called to do. And all this doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, though. Look at the end of verse 4. Peter calls this drive for dissipation what? He calls it a flood. Widespread, all-consuming, disastrous, difficult to avoid without extreme measures, right? Without levees and sandbags to hold it back or even relocation or evacuation to avoid it entirely. How many of you guys have sw swum, uh, swum, swam? How many of you guys have tried to swim against a current? Swim upstream, like especially when the river's running really, really rough? It's pretty hard to do, right? And in our own strength, we'd get exhausted, we wouldn't be able to make it. But God strengthens us to go like a jet ski upriver, you know? All right. So God provides the strength. Um, it still takes intentional, intense effort and determination, right? But it makes sense. Since our transformed new lives and walk, they serve a purpose, right? If we could do it on our own, would it really glorify him? No. Look at Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You guys got that part, that part right? That's his command. But look at the purpose behind it. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So in him strengthening us to be able to walk according to his way, it proves his glory, it proves his will, it proves his power. Fighting against the flood of dissipation proves God's good and perfect will. It's a witness to the world when we've had enough of our wasted worldly ways. 
Now we get to verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So verse 5 tells us that God cares what the worldly say and do. They will give an account to him. He's the perfectly just judge, and we're all guilty. We're all deserving of death for our sin. Verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Verse 6 tells us that God preaches the gospel to the worldly who are, who are walking the path to death, not to condemn those still drowning in the flood of dissipation for all they say and do. He mercifully uses the contrast of our changed lives, our new life in him, to preach the gospel to them in word and deed in hopes that they might rightly judge themselves and repent. And then, like the prodigal, realize that they've had enough, enough drowning in the flood of dissipation, enough running the world's relentless rat race, enough lewdness, lust, and drunkenness, enough depravity and evil speaking, enough living according to the ways of this sin-sick, fleshly, dying world. Are you guys fed up with the flesh? Yeah. Then, in light of all the explanation, the illumination, the reason that God gives us in the word, if we've had enough living in, in worldly ways, then stop caring what the worldly say and stop living as they live. End of verse six, but live according to God in the spirit. So God's given us three topics, convincing, exhorting, enough fleshly folly, and now he's gonna give us seven ways that we can live according to the spirit, that we can live according. So not only does he tell us enough, he tells us the reason why, and then tells us exactly what to do thereafter. So you, you want this next part? Yeah? All right. Verse 7a. But the end of all things is at hand. So live urgently knowing the end of all things is at hand. Christ has completed the work of redemption already. He's extended the gospel of grace. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But he's coming back. He will return soon to rapture the church. It could be at any moment. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So live knowing the end of all things is at hand. Live urgently. Let's address these truths in turn. So first, how do we live in the great hope of his grace? Knowing that our sin is fully paid in full. Knowing that his work is finished. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 tells us, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So should we be gathering together? Should we be exhorting one another? Should we be spurring one another up in love and good works? Yes, even more so as the day approaches. So now, how do we live according to knowing that the rapture of the church could happen at any moment? Shouldn't it spur on an urgency and a fervency in us to reach the lost? Knowing that our Lord will soon lift us up to him, we're supposed to be awake, we're supposed to be awaiting, not asleep at the wheel, not just drifting through life, wasting our lives, wishy-washy. Romans 13, 11 through 14 tells us, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, 
not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Again, any of this sound familiar? Does it sound like it's coming straight from our passage? It's consistent throughout his word. It's the will of God. Hopefully you guys are tracking with me, looking at how consistent the word is. His commands are clear. His path and purpose are clear. First, that we would be saved, and then that we would live our lives according to his will. All by his power. Verse 7b, so end of verse 7. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So live seriously, watchfully, and prayerfully. How many of you guys are memorizing Ephesians 6, 10 through 20? Somebody? Yeah, okay. Have you guys all given up on it? All right. We'll work on that. Maybe Thursday there'll be a quiz. All right. So Ephesians 6 tells us we're in the serious spiritual fight of our lives, right? That's the truth that it gives us. But fortunately, we're not alone in this fight. We're on God's side. At least I hope you guys are on God's side. Anybody not on God's side? Come on up, I'll talk to you. No. All, right. All right, God doesn't leave us hanging high and dry. He fully equips us with good armor. If you're going into a fight, don't you want the best equipment you can get? You think God's going to give us shoddy equipment? No. He clothes us in his righteousness. He makes us justified, just as if we never sinned. He gives us the peace of the gospel of grace, knowing that nobody can pluck us from his hand or separate us from his love and salvation if we're his and he's ours. He gives us the shield of faith in him, knowing that he's fully trustworthy, he's fully good, fully loving. He gives us the sword of the spirit, his sharp two-edged word, that we can wield it to both separate ourselves from sin and to fiercely fight against both flesh and foe. But not only does God equip us, he also gives us command and direction in this fight. You don't want to fight without any aim or direction, right? You want the guidance. You want the intel. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. This is verse 7b. Ephesians 6, 8 tells us, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So how often are we supposed to be switched on, serious, watchful in prayer? Always. Without ceasing even. Always on guard, always vigilant. Keeping an open line to our source of strength and power and provision. We're supposed to take this responsibility, this command to pray, seriously. If you guys were in the fight of your lives and you knew the number for like all-powerful air support, would you call it? Yeah, you'd have it memorized. You'd have it on speed dial, right? If you knew that somebody was going to pick up that phone who both loved you and had every ability to help you, wouldn't you call him? Or would you just try to handle it on your own? God tells us to pray. He says that he's attentive to us. We'd have that number memorized, started, speed dialed. So when you guys are going through crisis, or even always, are you praying to him? Are you calling to him for support, for help? We should be. So what are we to do when we're fighting against our flesh and facing temp temptation? Pray. Verse 7b, be serious and watchful in your prayers. What are we to do when our loved ones prayers? What are we to do when we're under attack and there's much evil speaking against us? Pray. pray. Ephesians 6, 8, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So not just for ourselves, but for one another. Now Peter gives us even more important instruction and direction. What's, what could be more important than serious, watchful, constant communication with God? Fervent love, spunky nose. All right, verse 8. 
And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So live to let God's love shine. We're to fervently love one another. This is not an optional thing. It is required. It is above all things. How can it be that loving one another is God's most important direction? Yeah. Jesus perfectly explains everything hangs upon love. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love is the foundation of God's entire design. It's the basis of all of his commands and law. But we don't even know what love is unless we know God, unless we know his perfect love for us. If we don't know him, we've got just this, this messed up version of love. I mean, when you think about love, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do for you if you do for me. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we're called to love as he loves, which means sacrificial love, perfect love, even the, to the point of laying down your life for one another. Oftentimes, we don't get that opportunity but look, conversely, if we, don't, if we don't love, that shows that we don't really know God. Sorry, I jumped ahead of my notes a little bit there. All right, First uh, John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we're to live to let God's love shine through us. Because he loves us first, because his love for us is so great, he wants us to love, he commands us to love. So if we know him, we ought to love. If we love him, our only reasonable response is to love one another. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what does it mean to love practically? What can we do today and from now on? 1 John three sixteen tells us, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. All right, so we're to give our lives for one another if necessary, yeah? How often do you give your life for someone? Not very often. So, Look at 1 John 3, 17 through 18. These are the very next verses. So, you know, write this down, 1 John 3, 16. It's like, all right, I got to lay down my life for people, but then practically, very next verse, 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we're to love indeed. We're to meet true material needs with whatever goods he gives us. Love meets practical needs. God is telling us to give our stuff, our money to others, if they have a true need, right? There are gonna be those that take, take, take. So discern, is there a true need? And then can you truly meet it? Then meet it. And that's not all. It's not just our stuff and money. First John three eighteen tells us to love indeed. What does it mean to love indeed? It means with your time, with your hands, with your help. To serve, to help, to do for others. Remember, Jesus is our perfect example. Did he just toss some coins and that's, that's it? No. 
If there's a true need, we're not to consider any task too lowly. What was Jesus willing to do? The lowest need. He washed feet. If Jesus can wash feet, we can wash feet. All right. Love also forgives and covers sin. So this is another practical truth from verse 8 in our text. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean that we hide or ignore or even allow the sins of others, that we turn a blind eye to them. Remember, God is the creator, perfecter. He's the embodiment of love. But how does he feel about sin? He hates it. So he certainly calls it out. He certainly corrects it. He allows sin's consequences to school us at times. But he also forgives sin, doesn't he? He suffers sin. He even remembers our sin no more. And so now we began to understand how love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes looking at opposites helps us to better understand. So listen to Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. Do you see the contrast there? So if we hate someone, we're going to weaponize sin. We're going to stir up strife. We're going to bring it up over and over again. This one's pretty convicting for me. I have a problem with, like, my wife does something, and I'm like, hey, you remember that one time? So if you guys, if you guys know me, you know... If you hear me doing that, say, Arthur, love covers sin. Yeah, anyway. All right, so hatred weaponizes sin to stir up strife, but love covers, it forgives, it makes peace. So we're called to love. We're not called to hatred. We're called to cover sin with long-suffering, not stir it up again and again. Listen to God's description and definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13. This is his heart, the heart behind his command. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love covers sin. It forgives. It suffers long. So if you're not sure how to love, look to God's word. Search out his will. Search out his heart. Look to Jesus' perfect example of love lived out for us to see and emulate. All right, back to our text, verse 9. And brace yourselves because God's word is convicting. His commands are, are sometimes difficult. Be hospitable to one another. All right, so God actually commands us to have one another over to our homes. How many people have not had somebody over in like the past year? All right, time to invite somebody over. Fortunately, it's potluck, so you can just go sit with them, but no, this is, bring them into your home, right? So he actually commands us to bring people into our homes. Listen to Hebrews 13, too. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So just pick your best buddy and have them over? No. Nope. God clarifies he means strangers, people we don't know. So you're off the hook now. Um, <laughs> The, the new person you just met, the person sitting there that, still doesn't, that you still don't know, like this is, this is a direct instruction to invite them over. Don't wait. Don't forget. Invite someone over. Make something on your calendar today. All right, let's finish the verse because this gets even more difficult. <laughs> verse 9, be hospitable to get one another without grumbling. So not only are you supposed to have people over, you're not supposed to complain about it. You know, Man, those kids, no. Um, we're to be hospitable without grumbling, without complaining. Um, again, listen to God's heart. This is the why behind his direction. Luke 14, 12 through 14. Then he said to him who invited him, 
When you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So we're to show hospitality to strangers, we're to show them God's love, and be blessed without complaining in the process. We're to serve selflessly as he loves us selflessly. Again, we're, we're not told to invite just the people that we like, um, friends, family, rich neighbors, not the person with the duck blind or, you know, whatever you're trying to get an invite for. We're, we're to love because Jesus loves. Buckle up. Verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So live as stewards of God-given grace. Realize that every single good gift is from God. Everything good is from him. Everything you got, your time, your talent, your health, your possessions, your abilities, your loved ones, they're all gifts that you've received from God. No one is a self-made man or woman. James 16, 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So we're instructed to hoard up these gifts for ourselves, right? Enjoy them? Nope. We're instructed to use these gifts as his stewards for ministry to one another. God has graciously offered us eternal salvation by grace through faith in Christ. He also graciously gives us all good in our lives. Everything good is from him. So totally understand that everything that we're given is an undeserved gift from him. So it's totally right to use those gifts as he directs, right? Yeah. Really, they're still his. He's entrusted us with his good gifts for a purpose. What happens to, well, yeah, I'm not going to go there. All right. I was going to say, what happens when your kids squander your gifts? Do you like that? And they just like, you know, break something? No, anyway. I'm not going to tell, yeah. My, my kid broke an RC car and Anyway, all right, um, Romans 12, 6 through 13. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. There it is again, same truth. Distributing, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Again, do you see the perfect consistency in God's word? Same truths over and over again. Every gift for his glory, verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So we're to speak his word. We're to minister with gifts, whatever they are, all for his glory. So are you guys serving him in some way with every gift that he has given you? That's a good test for us. Is every single thing that he's given us, everything. I, I challenged one person to think of three ways to like use... He's building a car. Like, think of three ways to use your car for God's glory. Like, everything you have, every gift, can you find some way to glorify God with it? I hope so. All right. Remember how the unbelieving will think that we're strange and speak evil of us? 
You guys remember that? I have to go back to that too? No? All right. Verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of, gl- of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Live in Christ. Living as his in the spirit is good, but it is not easy. Live expecting extreme trial and not ease. The life that we're called to is good, but it's also being conformed to the image of Christ. How easy do you think that's going to be? To become Christ-like. Do you think Christ lived an easy life? No. So that means getting to suffer some, obviously not all, but some of the same things that Christ willingly endured. So God warns us not to be surprised when, if we're living according to his will, that it involves even fiery trial, even suffering, even abuse, even assault, because we're God's stewards, servants, and children. And amazingly, when we endure wrong according to his will, we shine as his lights. We're blessed. He's glorified. So we should complain, right? No, we should rejoice. James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you evil against you falsely for my sake. If they've got legitimate grounds to say evil against you, you're doing something wrong, right? So don't demand suffering in sin lest we rightly suffer what we deserve, right? Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. So not for murder, which begins with hatred in our hearts, not for theft, which begins with coveting in our hearts, nor for any evil, including being a a nosy, snoopy, busybody. All right, all of these, he's saying, are shameful sin. And so if we've had enough, have we had enough with our sin? Hopefully, all right. All right, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. So if we're suffering, why are we suffering? If we have to suffer, we, we ought to suffer for the sake of our Savior, right? Not for the sake of our sin. All right, last topic. Verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is when things get serious. We know better. We have his clear instruction. We have the leading of the Holy Spirit. So will we willfully obey or willfully disobey? If we've had enough of our sin and flesh, we have all the reasons, right? He's given us every reason. He's given us his justification. He's given us all, yeah. Romans 6, 1 through 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? All right, so verse 18. Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So don't start thinking that it would be better not to know just so we can live in sin. That's a ridiculous line of reasoning. Judgment begins with us, with the church. But we're saved by Christ, albeit scarcely. The only reason we're saved is because he paid what we rightly owe. We're only saved because we're washed clean, we're cleansed, we're clothed in his righteousness. So where does that leave those who reject God's grace, who refuse to repent? 
Romans 1, 18 and 28 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. God lets us have what we want sometimes. He says, if that's what you want to do, if that's who you want to serve, you're going to get what you want. He'll let us separate from him if we so choose. So enough of our wishy-washy worldly ways. Choose today who you will serve. I pray that we choose to live for Jesus as our loving, living Lord, and then live committed to doing good for God. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Enough living for the lies of the unbelieving world. Enough living for self, for sin, that really doesn't satisfy. Enough living for our own foolish, fleshly idols. Let's live for the one who has proven his love, proven his power and promise, the one who loves us so much that he laid down his perfect life in our place, the one who rose to life as proof of his power and promise for eternity with him, the one who strengthens by the Holy Spirit, the one who never leaves or forsake us. Enough with thinking that we could ever earn or deserve or merit our own way, enough. Let's turn to Jesus, let's trust in him, let's take him at his word, let's believe upon him as risen living Lord and truly live. Lord, we thank you so much for redeeming us, Lord, for pulling us out of the, the muck and the mire, for paying the price that we racked up for ourselves, Lord. I thank you that you went in our place, Lord, to redeem us, that you loved us that much, not once we had cleaned ourselves up, because that's just not possible, but while we were still dead in our trespasses, Lord, while we were still against you, you came, you loved us, you laid down your life for us. I thank you for your instruction today, hard as it is, Lord. I thank you that you strengthen us against the current by your strength. I pray that you strengthen us in that, Lord, and that as we, we choose to listen to you, as we choose to trust you, Lord, that we would shine as your lights, Lord, and that we would love as you love. In Jesus' name.